morning. I am Mike Overstreet. I'm the director of growth groups here at E3, and I'll be teaching today. Uh, before we get started, I do have some sad news, uh, something that's been breaking our staff's heart this week. Uh, pastor Lori, one of our pastors here, her stepmom passed away on Friday quite suddenly, and she is not with us this week. Um, and then also John Stott, another staff member, his brother has found out some very bad news um, concerning cancer, and he is also away. So please be in prayer for them. They're not here, but we can still support them um, with our thoughts and our prayers, okay? So we're going to continue this week in our series, Jesus Wept. And we've been looking at the things that break God's heart and trying to talk about how can we respond to them as Christians, as, as his children. And today, we're going to continue that by talking about our relationship with creation, the earth. Now, whenever I think of creation, I think of this photo, Earthrise, the picture of the earth from the moon. It kind of changed everything for the first time the nation saw this. But more than that, I think of this thing called the overview effect. Does anyone here know what that is? She was here last week, or last sermon. The overview effect is this phenomenon that happens to astronauts when they see the earth from outside of it for the first time. I'm going to play a video that walks through some of the responses. It was truly incredible to be up there um, doing what I always wanted to do my whole life and then to kind of glance back at our planet and uh, see that view was just tremendous. I can only describe what I've seen. You know, looking down at the Earth and you see that, that line that separates day into night slowly moving across the planet. Thunderstorms on the horizon casting these long shadows as the sun sets and then watching the earth come alive, and you see the lights from the cities and the towns. The events you see from space, like flying over thunderstorms, looking at them from the top, were spectacular. Like a fireworks show going on, and you're looking at it from the very top. You know, shooting stars going below us, or, or you know, dancing curtains of auroras. It's just um, very hard to describe all the, you know, the colors, the beauty, the, the motion. Yeah, wow. I mean, this phenomenon fascinates me because it's beautiful, obviously. I mean, I, I just wish I could have that experience, and I probably won't. Uh, but what really fascinates me about it is actually the fact that people who experience it describe almost identical responses to seeing this for the first time. And this is what the overview effect is called. And they include things like they describe it as an epiphany, a mountaintop experience, a peak experience, a, a burning bush, if you will. They describe it as having this deep awareness of the connectedness of everything on Earth. Suddenly, any delusion you have of separation between you and the planet or you and other people is just gone. We're all in this together, right? This spaceship Earth. Then, they talk about a deep sense of awe and beauty. Obviously, it's a gorgeous oasis in space, which is soon followed by an overwhelming sense of fragility. And when I say fragility, I mean as the planet gets smaller and the space gets bigger, you realize that that blue dot is keeping us from all that out there. And they realize how fragile everything is. And it's followed, they say, by intense feelings of anger, urgency, and then motivation to change things. That it shakes them so much that they're never the same in how they see their world and what they want to do about it. And there's this great quote from Edgar Mitchell, an American astronaut, that I just love. It says, you develop an instant global consciousness, 
a people orientation and an intense dissatisfaction with the state of our world and a compulsion to do something about it. From out there on the moon, international politics looks so petty. You want to grab a politician by the scruff of the neck, take him a quarter of a million miles out and say, look at that, and I won't finish that sentence. But this is what, this is what the overview effect is. It shakes them away, it changes their worldview. They're never the same. In the scripture, the text that we're gonna talk about today, I believe should be a an overview effect for anyone who calls themselves a Christian. It should change our worldview. It should change the way we see ourselves, our God, and our planet. And it's the creation account, which a lot of you have heard about. This is the biblical account of how God made everything. And for those of you who are new to church, it's the first two pages of the Bible in this book called Genesis, in which it describes God in this beautiful, poetic act of creation of everything. They show him as an intimate gardener of life, a creator who speaks into existence, time and space, and then plants life within it, and relationally stays with it, nurtures it, and grows life out of it. It's beautiful. It's a perfect affirmation of the goodness of life and all that God makes. And nestled within this text, is this fascinating conversation on what humanity is. What does it mean to be a human being in the Bible? And this is the part of it that I think will act as an overview effect. It comes from this sentence, Genesis, in Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make mankind in our image and in our likeness. This small phrase is very complex. When we come to understand it, I believe it is so powerful because it teaches us who we are and why we exist. And for me, coming to understand that changed everything. And I'm going to walk through it bit by bit today, and maybe you'll agree. So we're going to walk through what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. We're going to start with our terms. We're going to define some terms, okay? It's class. The first one is image, salim. It's Hebrew. It means to resemble. Then there's likeness, demuth, which is to be like or to be similar to. So at our base level, we know that to be made in the image and likeness of God is to be similar or to be like or to resemble God. That's pretty easy. It doesn't leave us much to go with, though. Well, if you jump to later in Genesis, these terms only appear together once more. They are used to describe the relationship between a son and his father. So at our most bedrock level, our def definition level, we see that to be made in the image and likeness of God at its most foundational level is to have a familial identity and intimate relationship that is unique to humans and their father creator, which is pretty simple. You guys are church people are like, oh yeah, father God, I say that all the time. It's not shocking, but it's also not all there is. We're going to pull back a second layer. You see, if you take any amount of time to study Genesis 1 and 2, you're going to quickly see that there are certain commands and activities that are only given to human beings and not any other creature. We read in Genesis 1, God says, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every living creature. And then we read in Genesis 2.15, The Lord God took man, put him in the garden to work it, and to take care of it. Now, the first command you heard is not unique at all. They be fruitful and multiply and, and fill the earth. 
That is actually given to every living thing in the scriptures. We often as human beings in our pride go, well, that's just for us. But no, if you read Genesis, it's actually God saying to all living things to fill the space he's created. He wants a diversity of life in his world because he's a gardener. But there are four verbs or activities and commands in this text that are not given to anyone else in scripture, just human beings. And I think if we come to understand them, we'll find our next layer of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. They are dominion or rule, which is radah in Hebrew. They are subdue, kabash. They are uh, work or till or labor, which is avad. And then there is to take care of, which is shamar. And these words are fascinating because they actually form thematic pairs that inform each other. So the first one is subdue and work. These are agricultural terms in the Bible. What they talk about is when we plant seeds in a garden and we take care of that garden and we grow life out of that garden. They are about how we use the land to grow life, to grow food, to grow more from our land than it would on its own, right? And what's interesting, or what further informs this, is if you notice it only applies to the land, not to mammals. It says subdue the earth, not subdue creatures. So it is a command with limits. We are given the right to plant in the ground, to use the earth, to grow things out of it, up until the point that it infringes on other things' lives. And then it becomes a problem in Genesis. But we're given this unique command. Basically, what this means together is that part of our identity, in some way, shape, or form, is tied to the command to engage creation in such a way where, like God, we see potential in something that's not already there, we plant within it life, we cultivate that life, and we grow life out of it. And then we show deep respect for it. Next, we move to radah. And this is probably the most misunderstood word in all of Christian history. It means dominion or to have rule. And it implies that we are kings, right? It's a term for kingship in Scripture. A king has rule over a kingdom. So we go, well, human beings have rule over creation, which is what Genesis says. The only problem is we've misunderstood that word to mean we can do whatever we want with it. But if you've read the Bible, does God like bad kings? Does God let bad kings stay in power? Does God see dominion as a right or as a privilege? The interesting part about dominion in the Bible, a kingship in the Bible, is that God has clear expectations for his kings. He expects them to rule like he does. Justice, caring for the poor, looking out for the marginalized, being fair and humble. He also wants his kings to be stewards and not tyrants. Their kingdom is a gift, not a right. It does not belong to them. They are just stewards over it. And lastly, as I mentioned, God is not afraid to dethrone bad kings in Scripture. In fact, he does it quite often. Which raises a question, what does good dominion look like? And it looks like two things in the Bible. The first is Adam's first job in Scripture is to gather the animals and to name them. Which we go, oh, that doesn't, I mean, that's not a big deal. Well, in the ancient Near East context of Genesis, to give something a name was to give something an identity, a value. It is an intimate act. 
So the first act of, divin- of, of dominion is defined by love, relationship, intimacy, care, and inherent value. And then the next one is our other word, shamar, to take care of, which is also translated to protect, to preserve, to keep. And it's used in the Bible later to talk about the priest's job with God's temple. They are to take care of God's temple as his holy space. So what does biblical dominion look like? It is only biblical dominion, and if it is defined by intimacy, relationship, respect, preservation, and care. And if it lacks any of it, it falls short of God's definition of it. So we get a clearer picture of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. Yes, there is a relationship aspect of it, the me and God thing. He is our father, but it's not just a me and God thing. It also includes responsibility and a vocation. To put it simply, the the second layer is to be made in the image and likeness of God is also to take part in God's identity as a gardener of life, a godly steward king, accepting the responsibility of caring for God's good creation alongside God and in God's ways. God declares in Genesis that creation is good. It is inherently pleasing. It is valuable. And we have a vocation to care for it and treat it as such. So it is relationship, responsibility. Equal parts, right? But there's this other layer that I think gets us to the deepest part of what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. And it revolves around this term image and what it would have meant in Israel's ancient Near East context. You see, the Bible all the time pulls from the neighbors of Israel things like language, symbols, stories, metaphors, and it plays with them. It uses them to teach. And we often want to accuse God of being a plagiarizing bad student, but it's not because God's unoriginal. It's because God wants to be understood. If I was trying to get to know somebody who didn't speak my language, didn't come from my culture, and I only insisted upon speaking English and referencing diehard movies, would we have a relationship? Would they get to know me? No. So God speaks to them in language and themes and cultures and symbols that they understand. He plays with those. He's trying to make a really important point, and I believe that that is at the root of what's going on in Genesis. You see, Genesis uses this word image, which is interesting. Image can also be translated as idol. Who here has heard of idolatry? It's a big no-no in the Bible. God is not a fan of it. It's the practice of making a statue of a god and then worshiping it as if it was a god. God's not a fan of that. So the word that we're using to describe what it means to be a human being is that we are somehow idols of God in creation. And the word isn't the only connection to this idolatry thing or this idol thing. You see, Christian scholars have found this really unique overlap and these similarities and a familiarity with this ancient Mesopotamian ritual called the Mispipipi. Who wants to say that out loud? Yeah. And what's fascinating about these overlap and this connection is that this was the ritual that these pagan nations that surrounded Israel used to create, animate, and install idols in their temples. They believed that through this process, you would take a statue 
and it would come to life as the real living manifestation of that God in its temple. Not a statue, a real God, right? And Genesis plays with some familiarities with this, some similarities, to teach us a valuable point. And I'm going to walk through it today because I just think it's a cool and valuable thing, and I'm a Bible nerd. So we got our idol. I am not actually making an idol. This is just an illustration. Do not email me. <laughs> Mike the idolater. Um, so the, situ the, the, the ritual begins in a workshop. The priest takes some raw resources, usually stone or wood, and he crafts it into a statue of a god. This is what he thinks the god looks like. He then goes through, we're getting an elephant god. He gets it going by ritual washings, purification, um, usually offerings to it, some incantations. And then he takes it to a garden surrounded by rivers, or by a river. Plops it by the river to face sunrise for the first time. There's your sunrise. <laughs> they believed in this moment this idol was meeting its father god for the first time. It was meeting the god that would eventually bring it to life. And there would be these other rituals, these incantations, these other ceremonies. But in this process, the idol received a divine name and was invited into a divine family, a familial relationship with the other gods. There'd be more rituals, more sacrifices, etc. It's slowly coming to life. Its nose, its toes, whatever, toesies start moving. It's not fully alive yet, but it's coming to life in this ritual. That's what they believed. And then they would take it to a garden right outside its temple, the place where it would eventually live. And in this garden, it would be dressed in divine regalia. It would be given a divine identity. There would be more sacrifices to it as it prepared to enter its divine home. And this is where things get really interesting to me. You see, as it came into the temple that would be its home, it would have final rituals that would make it a physical manifestation, a living God in the temple, in their mind. And they believed it would stop being stone or wood and would actually become divine. It would become a divine being. And this was symbolized by a ritual that they said opened its eyes and its mouth. That's when it became a divine being. So it would come fully to life, its eyes would open, its mouth would open, and then it would be put on a throne in the middle of the temple. And when it was in its throne, they believed it would start carrying out divine work and divine rule over its temple. What they believed was it would start accepting sacrifices. It would start answering prayers. It would start protecting the temple and those who worshipped it. It would rule over where it was installed as a divine being. And there's all sorts of similarities in this with Genesis, right? The language that we use, we already talked about that, idol, icon. The word for installed is the same word that Genesis uses for Adam being placed in the garden. It's being installed in the garden. Adam, as God's idol, is being installed in God's temple. The settings are similar. There is a workshop. God crafts Adam out of dust, not in Eden. He is installed in Eden after he is made, right? So he goes from a workshop to a garden surrounded by rivers, into a holy temple where he is installed. The order of events is the same. And what's really interesting to me is that the process is the same. First, it is manufactured. Then it is birthed. And then it is given, what? Rule 
over its temple. So if we think about that, we have this idol created from raw materials, dust in Adam's case, who's brought to life by divine breath, who is given a divine name, who is invited into the divine family, and then who is given rule over where he's installed. And we can get freaked out about that as Christians. We shouldn't. Like I said, this is God trying to teach his people something very important that they'll understand. And it's the deepest layer of our identity. To be made in the image of God is what what they're saying in Genesis is that we are in some way an icon of God in creation. Or even deeper than that, what I believe is that it's calling us, it's saying that our base identity is to be so true in our reflection and our representation of our Father that wherever we go, so too does God's character, God's nature, God's presence, and God's work. That we represent him so well in who we are that wherever we are, so too is the divine. That gives me goosebumps. Does anyone else feel that? I just think that's so cool. But I've also been lying to you because it's also a tool that the Bible often uses to highlight crucial differences with the surrounding cultures. To say that our God is not like your God. Our God and our story is different. And that happens here. In the Miss P. Peep the opening of the eyes at the end is what? When the idol becomes divine or actually becomes the God. Well, there's an opening of the eyes in Genesis too. It's a little different. You see, a serpent comes to Adam and Eve and it tempts them by eating from a tree that God said they can't eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they know that if they eat this tree, they'll be able to determine what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. And in Genesis, this act is taken very seriously. We read that the serpent says, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will what? Be opened and you will be what? Like God. Knowing good and evil, and when the woman saw it, she ate it. She gets her husband to eat it, and then what happens? Eyes open. And in the mispipipi, this is the moment in which Adam and Eve would become divine. They would become the gods. The idol would become a manifestation of the God in the world. But in Genesis, that's not the case. In Genesis, it is an act of rebellion. But it's more than just an act of rebellion. It's what we call in Christian storytelling the fall. It's the moment where creation fundamentally breaks. This act, for whatever reason, the taking of the right to determine what is good and evil is so fundamentally wrong in the Genesis story that it shatters everything. Creation gets sick because of it, not just human beings. Decay, death enters the world through this rebellion. And if you were the original audience, you'd be shocked by this, right? You're like, that's not how the story goes. That's the moment they become the God. What do you mean everything falls apart? And I believe that he's using this similarity to teach us something so powerful about God's story of who we are. You see, the choosing of good and evil, becoming the God in the Babylonian tradition was the point. And for us, it is the destruction of everything we are because the idols in God's story were never meant to be God. It is against our design. It is against our nature. It is not who we are. And the Bible shows this as a fracturing of the image bearer's identity at every level. We break our ability to be true children because we try to replace our father. We break our ability to be steward kings because we become tyrants. We break our ability to reflect God as his icon because we start reflecting our own agendas in the world. 
And it's seen in a fracturing of all of our relationships in, in Scripture. Our relationship with the divine presence is broken. Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. Our relationship with other people is fractured. They become objects. We objectify people as tyrants on our conquest for power and control. Our ability to reflect God's intentions in creation is what we need to talk about today. Because we as the church spend a lot of time talking about the breaking of those other two, the me and God and the me and people things. But in the Genesis story, the relationship with creation also breaks. And caring for creation was our first vocation. It is fundamentally tied to who we are and why we exist. It is not an option to be an image bearer of God. Our relationship to creation is part of who we are. And in that relationship and the activities that came with it snapped. They changed. They've been broken. When we decide to play God, when we decide to look at the creation that God called good, and we say, I'm not sure how good it is. I think it's actually ours. When it stops being a gift. And what this looks like is we stop being stewards and we start becoming tyrants and we confuse the word dominion with domination. Am I preaching yet? And God's good creation pays the price for our rebellion. I'm going to read some raw data and I want you to reflect on it in silence and I want you to ask yourself the question, how are we doing at God, reflecting God's character in our world? and the thing that God called good. Since 1914, 99% of rhinos and 99, or 97% of tigers have gone. Since 1993, 90% of lions have died. Since 1950, 90% of large ocean fish have gone. Since 1990, 90% of sea turtles are gone. Since 1995, 90% of monarch butterflies are gone. Since 1985, over 50% of the Great Barrier Reef has died. In the last 50 years, 50% of all land vertebrates have gone extinct. This includes 60% of every kind of mammal, bird, fish, and reptile on our earth. 60% have gone extinct in the last 50 years, and another 50% will go extinct in the next 40 if something does not change. We are currently experiencing five thousand times the natural extinction rate in this century. It's the largest mass extinction since the dinosaur, and there is no asteroid, just us. It impacts the Earth, too. Eight million pieces of plastic end up in our ocean every day, and that rate will double in the next decade. There are more 500 times more pieces of microplastic in our ocean than there are stars in our galaxy. 40% of lakes in America are too polluted for fish life, aquatic life, or for humans to swim in. And there's a human cost too, and as usual, the poor tend to carry it. 91% of the world's population and almost all of the world's poor live in an area in which the air quality falls below the recommended level for human health. 91%. One billion people currently walk a mile or more a day for clean water, and that is projected to grow to four billion in the next decade. Four billion with a B. 
For every one degree increase in sub-Sahara Africa of the temperature, intergroup civil violence increases 14%. And children in this area will on average lose one grade level of education in one year of literacy. They will also be projected to be two inches shorter than the previous generation due to malnutrition. And there's a significantly higher rate of death in childbirth or dying in your first two years of life. This is what it looks like to forget who we are and why we exist as image bearers of God. This should break your heart. Creation was innocent in this. It paid for our rebellion. It is crying out to us, but we have gone deaf to it and it is becoming increasingly numb to us. And this makes God mourn. I'm going to be honest, as I prepared for this, this sermon, I found myself with those two common responses. The first one is the broken humorous, human response, which looks like one of two things. First, this isn't my fault. This isn't on me. This isn't my responsibility. I don't care. God and I are fine. The other one is despair. It's too much. What am I supposed to do about that? I'm, I'm helpless. There's only one problem. The Bible does not let us take that route. If we are to believe that the Bible is true, then as image bearers of God, we are not given the comfort of denial and self-pity. We are given a responsibility and a vocation, and God certainly expects his kings to live up to it. So we have to go another response. We have to believe the gospel and accept a kingdom response. And it looks quite a bit different. It comes in steps. The first step is that we need to treat the creation story as the overview effect for us. We need the awe. We need the beauty. We need the magnitude. We need the fragility. We need the motivation. We need the urgency. Genesis invites us into a worldview in which God is creator, creation is good, we are his icons. You don't get to decide if that's true or not. You just get to decide if you want to live within it. And our only response to this is to have the epiphany and to reclaim who we were made to be. Children, kings, icons. First, we have to reclaim what it means to be God's children. This takes repentance. It takes metanoia. It takes the changing of our consciousness in our hearts. We need to fundamentally change how we see creation and our relationship with it. We can't take back what's been done. That's not how time works. We can only choose how we respond to it now. Will we be the people of God, living in God's standards in our world? That's our choice. The church needs to rediscover a theology and a doctrine of creation. It is not ours and we are not God. Next, we need to reclaim our first vocation to be steward kings. Christians have a higher responsibility for our planet than anyone else, I am sorry to tell you, because we know the God who made it and we know the goodness he proclaimed over it. And we know, at the end of the day, that we cannot like, take this out of who we were meant to be. 
And third, we need to take seriously our deepest identity as God icons in the world. When you look at those numbers, let me ask you, do we reflect God's heart or do we reflect idolatry? The idolatry of consumption, the idolatry of greed, the idolatry of objectification, the idolatry of me. I don't see much God in that. And to change who we reflect, we need to change how we live and how we act, guys. It starts with our lifestyle. Have you taken time to think through where, how much you produce in terms of waste? What you do with your energy? Where you spend your money? And if you're spending it in ways that help our planet? Christians are called to living as stewards, reflecting him in our lives. We're called to action. You all have time, talents, and treasure. Have you put those in play for God's kingdom in terms of how he cares about his good creation? Giving time, money, your talents to organizations that want to steward our planet and heal what's been broken. And last, you have to give your voice. We are called to be a prophetic voice. That's what the church is called to do. Will we stand up and speak for what cannot speak for itself? The church has been too silent. We need to look at these things that have taken God's good creation and use them and say, no, that is not your right. And it's not yours to use. Will we stand up for God's world? And finally, we have to hope. We have to hope. The good news of the Bible is that God will one day make things right. God will restore, God will save, God will redeem. The bad news is he starts that process with the very people who broke it in the first place, us. Specifically the church, the first fruits of God's redemption of our world, the church. The church centered on Christ, led by the Spirit, redeemed to being the true image bearers of God in how they live and act and serve in the world. Will we answer our calling and return to who we were meant to be? We are called to live in the tension that exists between the present reality, our past failures, and God's grace and his work in the future. Between our sin and forgiveness, between our hope and redemptive action, in this text, this tension in light of grace and the redemption that comes from it should be an overview effect for us. It should shake us awake. It should wake us up to who we are and why we were meant to be. And that should fundamentally take you on a journey that changes everything. And it starts today. There are two people in this room more than any. There's the one that says, it's not on me. This is not my responsibility. I don't care. And then there's the one that says, I have no hope. I despair. And I have bad news. We don't get that right as God's children. We are a people of hope. We are a people of divine action. We are a people that when we live out our calling wherever we are, so is the presence and the rule of God. And his love in his peace, in his shalom.
We are a people made for self-honesty and hope. And that's what I want to invite you into today. So as we reflect in this next song, I'm going to ask you two simple questions. The first one is, where do you need to change? There are people in this room that we just need to accept the reality of what God calls us into. We just need to change our lives. I know I do. And then the other question is for the other group. Where do you need to hope again? Because we are not a people with the privilege and the comfort of despair. It is not part of our story. We need to hope again. The creation needs us to be the church. And if the church won't do it, then who will?